Well, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. If this is your first Sunday, my name is Dustin, and I get to be the pastor here. While you're still standing, let's read our passage for this morning. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 5 today. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, Jesus and his conversation with the Samaritan woman, and today we're going to be looking at one of the healings of Jesus. This is John chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 18. A friend, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning out of the Gospel of John. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, or porches. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Would you be seated and keep your Bible open in front of you? And well, as we go into this uh, fascinating story out of the Gospel of John, I do have a question for you. Uh, what could make you whole? Do you ever think about that? Uh, what, what could make you whole? If you think about it, we pin a lot of our hopes on becoming whole finally, don't we? I mean, a lot of our lives are really oriented towards some sense that we're not well and something needs to change, right? Whether it's finding that right job, right? Whether it's finally getting away from that relationship or whether it's finally getting into a relationship. Maybe it's finding that rest you've always wanted, that vacation, right? But it's not just the vacation. It's the sense that you finally have real rest, that you can breathe, right? Maybe it's that experience you've always longed for, you know, finally getting that success in your career. You know, whatever that hurdle is in your career, right? Don't you just think about it all? If I could just clear that one hurdle, make that one next step, then I would finally have rest. 
right? Or maybe it's in the opposite direction. Maybe you think, I'll finally be whole and free when I'm finally clear of all these annoying responsibilities that I have hanging over me. Do you ever wonder, you know, what could make you whole? What is it that you're hoping and pining for uh, to make you whole? I think people think about this all of the time. Almost everything in our life, whether we realize it or not, is oriented towards this sense that something's wrong with me and I need to work on fixing it, whatever it is, whether it's my career or relationships or life goals or anything. What what is that thing, that rest that you're hoping you're going to find? Um, there's a really visceral example, I think, of this, this pining, this sort of this sense of unease. Uh, and I saw it uh, this past year on an airplane. Anyone hate flying on an airplane? Anyone think about meeting God the whole time on an airplane? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a funny quirk, right? If you ask most people, do you want to go to heaven? They're like, duh, yes. But then if you ask them, you want to go this afternoon? <laughs> most people are like, well, let me get back to you on that one. Well, I was on this airplane, and I was watching a fascinating documentary. I'm, you know, I do watch documentaries when I have to, right? And uh, this, was, this is actually a great documentary. It won the Academy Award for Best Documentary for the Year, just this past February. It won the Academy Award. And many of you have probably seen it. Uh, it's about a guy named Alex Honnold, who's a young 30-something-year-old guy, and he free-climbed El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. So what that means, essentially, is Alex Hunold, this 30-year-old guy, scaled a 3,000 sheer face rock, the hardest rock climbing wall in the entire world. He climbed it without any ropes whatsoever. All he had were his hands and his feet. And he climbed it from the bottom to the very top, and he did it in a matter of hours. Typically, it takes people weeks to do that, and he did it in a few hours. Uh, but as you're watching this movie, he has a girlfriend, he has a family, and sort of the overriding question of the whole documentary is, why are you doing this? He's got this cute little girlfriend. People seem to like him for some reason, even though he's kind of suicidal, right? <laughs> you know, things aren't that bad, Alex, right? But as the movie goes on, and if you've seen it, he actually, there's this moment, there's this moment where he takes the mask off, Right? There's this moment where we actually see what is it that he's striving for? What is it that he's hoping is going to finally make him whole? And he starts talking about how he never finds anything that he does good enough. And so this is a quote from him in the movie. He says, you know, the bottomless pit of self-loathing, that's the motivation for soloing. And he goes on and he says that the reason he does it is because he knows that he has to be perfect in order to make the climb, which means when he makes the climb, he finally is whole. He's finally perfect. It's this bottomless pit of self-loathing. I mean, do you ever feel that way? I mean, maybe you've got good self-esteem or your mom hugged you a lot or whatever we need for self-esteem. But do you ever just get the sense that you're a phony? <laughs> Anyone here around all of us religious people and you're like, I don't fit in? All of these, maybe you know us too well not to not think that, right? But, you know, we can get this sense that we're not whole, right? That even our religious things are, are phony, right? Uh, that there's something about us that needs to be fixed. Uh, there's this deep longing that things aren't the way they're supposed to be even internally. And that's exactly, if you haven't caught it already, this is exactly what this story is about. 
All right, so this story actually happens, uh, but John is quick to tell us the stories of Jesus that he picks out to put into this gospel account are also signs. They're meant to demonstrate something for us. So when Jesus goes to, for instance, Samaria, and he shares the gospel with a Samaritan woman, not only did that literally happen, it's also supposed to remind us that the gospel is for everybody. Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, respected or disgraced, it's for anybody. And what this story is about is Jesus, out of a crowd of people, finds one man who is not whole. And Jesus offers him the opportunity to be truly whole and well, to be healthy, right? So let's dive into this passage. What does that look like? Well, what does it mean to be made well by Jesus? Well, the first thing you need to realize if you look at this passage, look right down there with me at verse 5-1. The first thing is, is, you know, the first sentence sort of sets the stage, right? So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And part of the reason John is telling us that is because it's going to explain why Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem at the end of the story. So he starts off and he gets to Jerusalem, he heals a man, and then at the end of the story, he catches up with that man in the temple, And he says, I don't think you caught what I was doing for you, right? We got to do the second part of Jesus' talk, right? So not only is he in Jerusalem just for the sake of the story, there's also this sense that he's letting us know that Jesus observes the feast of the Jews, the Jewish feast. Jesus is an Orthodox Jew. He would have obeyed the Jewish law. He would have been steeped in the Old Testament, which is going to become quite the sticking point later on in this passage, because there begins a debate about whether or not Jesus observes the Sabbath. So right there in verse 1, uh, Jesus is established as somebody who obeys the Old Testament law. You know, sometimes we think, you know, rules, God doesn't like rules. So Jesus is like, ah, rules, boo, right? That's not at all what Jesus is doing. Jesus upholds the law perfectly so that we can find our perfection in him. But we'll get to that later. So go to verse 2. Right there, he says uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he comes across this pool uh, in Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, It's called Bethesda, and it's got five roofed colonnades. And that's kind of a specific word right there. And it just means a porch with a roof, right? It's a big ceiling without any walls, right? It's like a big patio with a roof on top. And what's fascinating about that is there are all kinds of people, uh, disabled people who are there, and if you, I don't want to, you know, I won't go down this rabbit hole very long, but if you have the King James or the New King James, you'll have verse 4. Uh, you may have noticed that verse 4 is not in our passage in the ESV. And the, the only reason that's the case is because all of the earliest manuscripts uh, don't have verse 4. Uh, it's an explanation uh, saying that, well, the reason all of these disabled people are by this pool is because there was a legend, there was this belief that an angel would come and stir up the water and the first person who got in the water would be healed. Now, uh, that may be true. That may be a true legend. You know, it may be true, but uh, it's not in the original text, so therefore it's not in um, any of the modern translations. And and if you have any questions about that, I'd be happy to answer those uh, afterward if you've got it. But I don't want to spend too long on that. Just know that uh, there's a reason it's there. Uh, But regardless, whether that verse is in there or not, it doesn't really change the meaning of the passage, which is all of these people who are disabled are hoping to become healed Uh, to be whole, literally in in Greek, right? To be made well. And it says they're all hanging around this place called the Pool of Bethesda. 
And uh, maybe you're not interested in this stuff, uh, but uh, it's actually uh, quite fascinating. In the 1700s and in the 1800s, sort of during the Enlightenment and sort of the modern period, uh, people started reading the Bible differently. And they said, these these aren't true stories. This is just nonsense. And actually, uh, many scholars would point to John 5 as evidence that the Bible Uh, The Gospels are not true history. And they would say things like, there's no such thing as a pool with five roofs. I mean, what in the world? Is it a trapezoid? What shape does this take? There's no five-roofed porch or patio anywhere in Israel. But what's fascinating, right, is as they tried to use this passage to disprove the Bible, unfortunately, uh, because God never lies, in 1888, a German missionary amazingly unearthed, you guessed it, the pool of Bethesda. And the reason they couldn't find it, it was because Christians had the audacity of building a church on top of it. You can go there. If you've been to Israel, you may have been to the church of St. Anne. It's owned by the Catholic Church now, and it's where the pool of Bethesda is located. And the reason it has five porches is because it would have had one porch, two on either side, and a fourth at the bottom. But then surprisingly, the curveball is that there was a fifth wall in the middle. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the 1940s and 50s, uh, not only did the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm that the Old Testament we have is incredibly accurate, the Dead Sea Scrolls also talk about, guess what? The pool at Bethesda. And guess what they say? It says, actually, it was the twinned outpouring pools because there was the northern pool and there was the southern pool. And what separated them was the fifth porch. So probably what was happening is it was one big pool, and they separated the men from the women. And so actually what is supposed to be uh, for us, uh, you know, according to these scholars, right, a reason not to believe embarrassingly becomes a really great reason to realize that this is rooted in actual real history, right? And whether these pools were destroyed when Israel was taken over in AD 70 or not, the point is, is that John, the author, is telling you this really happened at a real place in real time. And you may be thinking, why is, that, why is he making such a point? Who cares whether or not the pool was there? That doesn't matter. Fine. Okay, I'll look it up on Wikipedia later. The pool's there. Hooray. That doesn't prove anything. But what I want you to realize, friends, is when the Bible talks about Jesus, it is uh, dramatically important that we believe these things actually happened. Uh, Christianity is a religion rooted in real history. And the reason that's important is because if we, if we think of Jesus, if we reduce him down uh, to sort of like our moral uh, example, right, the truest man, right, if Jesus is just the example of how we're supposed to live, And it doesn't really matter whether he healed this guy, right? That doesn't really matter. The point is, is that Jesus is courageous and brave, and he stands up to authority, and he speaks truth. He, you know, he speaks truth to power. That's what Jesus is supposed to be to us. It's not the actual Lord who can heal, but sort of this moral example. Now, maybe even a divine example, right? If that's what Jesus is, if he's your divine example, um, I just want you to just realize the crushing weight you just put on yourself. Anyone here think you can live up to the moral example of Jesus? <laughs> if you do, you're, you know, you're not trying hard enough to be a moral person, right? Nobody can live up to Jesus' moral standard. You see, what Jesus offers is not a higher bar that we've got to leap over to. 
What Jesus says dramatically is he says, I will be righteous on your behalf. You can't heal yourself. You've been waiting 38 years for some pool, some legend to heal you. And don't you realize I'm the source of life? I'm the one who can heal you. I'm the one who gives you meaning and purpose because I'm the Lord of everything. You see, the Christian belief system, the Christian identity is a righteousness, a worthiness uh, that we do not earn. No matter what rock wall you climb, you will not be able to be perfect. You will not justify your existence. Instead, amazingly, what God does is he comes and enters our world and lives the life you and I were always supposed to have lived. He dies the death you and I actually deserved. And then amazingly, because he loves us, he attributes his righteousness, his goodness to our account. He says, all you've got to do is believe. You know, John Calvin once said, faith in Jesus, you know, it's not us earning God's Uh, forgiveness. It's not cleaning ourselves up so we're not phonies anymore and we can earn God's forgiveness. Faith is the empty hand that receives the gift of God. You know, Martin Luther said becoming a Christian is like uh, like being a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread, right? But we all want to be bakers, right? But we're not bakers. We're beggars. But we found who gives us bread. So how do I get that in this passage? Well, look at verse 5. There's a man, he's been living for 38 years, and we don't know how he got disabled. We don't know if he's 38. We don't know if he's in his 60s. Um, it's it's um, unclear how he ended up being disabled. And we don't even really know the nature of his disability. Um, is he actually paralyzed, or is he just not capable of getting down to the pool quick enough? And so Jesus Uh, Just like he knew he had to go into Samaria, Jesus knew he had to go speak to this man. Did you catch that? Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? See, what Jesus is offering, right, is, is true healing, true restoration, right? He's saying, do you want to be made whole? But the guy doesn't obviously catch the depth of the question. He doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Instead, what he says is he says, well, the, the reason I'm not healed, well, obviously I want to be healed, but the reason that I haven't been healed is because nobody's been quick enough to put me into the pool when, like, the time is right for me to be healed, right? But what's amazing is Jesus doesn't even engage the pool. He doesn't even talk about the pool. You know, he's like, oh, you think the pool's going to be what makes you whole? You think finally when you get to the, that's going to be it? That's what's going to fix you? That's what you've been hoping for for all of these years? Finally, when you get in, that's what you're hoping for. And then to show him that the only real source of healing and wholeness is himself, Jesus says, you're misunderstanding what I'm I'm saying. Get up, take up your mat, and walk out of here. And just like that, the man does it. Now, what's fascinating about that, of course, is that John believes this actually happened. Jesus actually miraculously healed the man. Uh, But you may think this is, oh, what a beautiful story. Jesus promises healing, and he loves disabled people. But if you'll notice, 
Right at the time that this man is healed, the story actually turns an odd corner. And if you haven't been reading with us carefully in the Gospel of John, it may throw you for a loop the way that this story goes, because it's going to end up very, very dark. And in fact, by the end of this passage, we get the first explicit words telling us in the Gospel of John that people are going to try to kill Jesus. There's been all of these hints all throughout John that people oppose Jesus, and Jesus can't trust himself to man because he knows what's in us. But here what happens is this man is miraculously healed, but notice specifically what he does next. It's fascinating. The whole story hinges on this. So the man gets up. He's physically healed, right? Jesus physically healed him. But then some Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders, that's what it means when it says the Jews in verse 10, right? The Jewish leaders, they come up to this guy and they say, what are you doing? You can't be walking around carrying your mat. It's Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work. Now, of course, there's no Old Testament law forbidding carrying your bed on Sabbath, you know, on the day of rest, the one in seven. But notice what the man does. They say, who who told you to do this? What's going on? And in verse 11, this healed man says, well, the guy who healed me, he told me to do it. Which is not exactly the kind of explanation of faith we're hoping for. Um, It's Uh, I I know maybe you're thinking I'm being mean. I promise you, I'm not being mean to this guy, okay? I love this guy. I hope he came to faith. But the whole point of this story is I don't think this guy comes to faith, okay? You've got to grasp that. I don't think this guy comes to faith. And it's important to get. Remember, this is a surprising story, and it's because he doesn't come to faith. The leaders, they come up to him and say, why are you doing that? And he pulls the oldest card in the book. He says, ah, somebody told me to do it. Remind you of any other excuse a man has ever given? Way, 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 way back at the beginning of everything, there was another man. Fewer clothes, but still just as culpable. And God goes to a man named Adam, and he says, why did you eat the fruit? And do you remember what Adam's response is? He says, the woman... You gave to me. She made me do it. Men, if you want to work on your marriage, you just own that sin, right? You just gotta, you just gotta take that in. Let it just, you just gotta soak in that, right? Our natural inclination is to blame our wives and also blame God for the stupid things that we do. Thank you. Amen. I guess that's not preaching to y'all. Preaches to somebody, I can guarantee you. There's some wives that are like, oh, buddy, I just got some ammunition today. <laughs> right? Adam, like all men, right, what he does is he shirks the responsibility. And he says, well, it's the woman's fault. And by the way, who gave me the woman? You did. So actually, surprise, it's your fault. Right? <laughs> this is very similar to what this man does. And the reason I'm saying that, I'm not just picking on him because of this passage. You can go later on this afternoon in John, and I want you to read John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, a man who is blind is healed, and he can see. And the same leaders come up to that man, and they say, who healed you? And the guy says, I don't know, but he must be a prophet. He must be awesome. Do you want to be his disciples too? And they say, never. And he says, oh, weird, because he healed me, so he must be awesome. And then he starts to preach at them. And they say, get out of here, you know nothing. And then Jesus follows up with that blind man in John 9. And Jesus says, do you believe 
in the Messiah? And the man says, I would if I knew who he was. And Jesus says, I am him. So if you compare this healing to John 9, it starts to shed light on what this man is doing. You see, this man says, hey, don't ask me any questions. Your problem is with whoever healed me. And so in verse 12, they say, well, who was it? But if you look at verse 13, the man doesn't know because Jesus healed him. And the man never bothered to ask Jesus his name. Now, there's another story of Jesus performing a miracle where he heals 10 people. And how many ever come back to thank him? Well, in the story, only one does. Well, this man is healed physically. But what you need to grasp is he's not actually whole. He's not actually whole. Because Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just trying to heal our disabilities and our sufferings. He proved that because he walked into a room full of disabled people and chose one. And why would Jesus do that if his only goal was to heal our physical sufferings? Could it be that God has a different purpose for our physical sufferings and our disabilities? You see, in the end of the story, Jesus finds this man. He finds him in the temple. Remember, it was a Jewish festival, so everybody's in the temple. And I like to imagine Jesus kind of comes up behind him and, you know, taps the man on the shoulder. And the guy's like, oh, hey, you're back. And Jesus gives a warning to this man. And, and don't, don't try to gloss over that. Jesus, look what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, see, you are well. See, don't you see what I've done for you? Don't you realize who I am? And then he gives one of the oldest warnings in the Bible. Repent. Repent. Turn to me. It's an offer for this man to come to faith in Jesus. Repent. Believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and turn towards me. But how does the man respond? Does the man say, oh, I get it. I get it. No. What the man does in verse 15 is he goes and he tells on Jesus. He tries to ingratiate himself with the religious leaders. He tries to win their approval. He tries to get his identity and his purpose and his meaning in the approval of other people. Because his meaning and his identity and his wholeness is not found in Christ. So he goes to find it in other people. And that starts the process, of course, of Jesus' death. So what are we supposed to learn? Well, I think you could probably find two important things that I want you to grasp. The first is uh, the principle in this story. Uh, and I think it's so important that you get this. Is that if you sense that God is doing something in your life, um, if you believe that you are not here by accident, which, by the way, you know, spoiler alert, no one is here by accident. If you are sensing coming near to God, the consistent principle all throughout the Bible is as you draw near to God, the actual reality is that God has been drawing near to you the whole time. Out of a crowd of people, He came to you. And so as you approach him, his grace was meeting you before you ever took a step towards him. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible. I mean, even the Ten Commandments, right? In the great story of all the rules we're supposed to obey, what's the first thing God says on Mount Sinai? 
He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He brings his people to freedom. And then he says, follow these rules. He sets the people free and then he says, live like free people. And that pattern is so important. Uh, Because if you're still thinking you've got to sort of fix yourself uh, to be worthy enough uh, to come to church or to be made right with God, or you've got to clean yourself up enough, uh, friends, you are like the man looking at the pool, thinking it's going to heal you, when Jesus is before you saying, don't you get it? I'm the pool. (laughs) I am the one who can give you life and meaning and purpose. I'm the only one that can make you whole. Why would you look to a pool when I am standing in front of you? If you think you've got to clean yourself up enough to be made right with God, you're missing Jesus. You're not hearing his voice. There's white noise that Jesus is going to cancel out in the back of your mind. And his voice is going to speak louder because even now he is drawing near to you. That's the first thing I want you to, that's the first sort of principle from that, right? God, if you hear his voice, he is moving towards you even now. Uh, The second thing sort of the scary thing that we learn from this story is that it's possible for people to experience something spiritual, something about Jesus, and yet never come to him. It's possible for you to have some kind of positive experience with Jesus and never actually know him. It's possible for this man to be physically healed, but never to be healed inwardly. You know, Jesus will say it in other ways. Jesus can say, like, he, he scatters seed, and some seed grows in very thin soil, and it grows up for a little while, but then it dies. And some seed is sown in beautiful, rich, dark soil, and it grows. You see, it's possible for us to have some exposure to Christianity or grace or to have some positive thoughts about Jesus, and yet unless we come to him as the only source of life, and truth, and wholeness, and meaning, we miss him. And we may end up becoming his enemy. This man who's healed, he ends up helping Jesus be murdered. Now, how in the world could Jesus be that important? (laughs) Can't I just admire him from a distance, you're thinking? Well, the reason I would say the answer to that... um, is no, and it's good news that the answer is no, is because Jesus is the Lord himself. And that's exactly what this passage ends on. I know this is a surprising passage, but that's exactly where this story ends. Now look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus is doing good things on Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders come up and they say, you shouldn't be doing that. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And you may think, that's kind of a weird riddle. I don't know that I get what he's saying right there. I mean, I do, but I don't think I actually get what he's saying. And to understand what Jesus is really getting at, uh, you have to sort of know a little bit about the Old Testament and how people would have understood theology. Um, If you remember the story of creation, God creates the world in how many days? He creates the world in six days, and then God rests on day seven. 
Which is kind of an odd question, right? Because we all know that in him we move and live and have our, our being, right? And unless God were sort of orchestrating the world right now, you and I couldn't take breath in our lungs. So there is a sense that God is still active all of the time, and yet the Bible tells us he rests on the seventh day. On the seventh day. So how do we reconcile? Well, in the time, the rabbis would say, well, uh, what that really means is when God rests on the seventh day, what that means is there is a sense of enjoyment and wholeness and happiness that God experiences when he looks at creation. He loves the creation. He rests. He finds joy in it. And that doesn't mean God stops orchestrating the universe on Sunday, right? I mean, we just prayed to the Lord that he would help our service a few minutes ago. And we believe God answers that. Because what the rabbis realized was that we were bound to stop working on Sundays, but there is a sense that God's always at work in the world. God may even be at work in your heart right now. And so the whole, like, don't do stuff on Sunday, the rabbis would have understood, well, of course there are things God's going to do on Sunday that don't, that don't fall under that. And God isn't breaking the Sabbath because God has a different category for himself, Right? That's the difference. He's the creator, we're the creation, so God is still able to keep everything moving in this world, and he's not breaking the Sabbath. And what Jesus says, and the important thing that Jesus is saying, and why they get so mad at him, is because Jesus says, I'm in that category. I'm, in that, I'm not in this category. I am in that category. God is able to make this world go around all day on Sabbath. He never takes a break. He is always at work in people's life. And I am in the same category. So don't hold me to that. In the other Gospels, when people get mad about Jesus on the Sabbath, he doesn't say, well, you know, guys, God's just really uptight in the Old Testament. And he got, you know, now he's cool. He's cool, Dad. He was mean, Dad, before. Now he's cool. Don't worry about the Sabbath. What Jesus says is he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So don't question me. Don't question. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he says. He says, God is always at work and so am I. I am not bound by your rules. I set the rules. You see why when he says that, their only response is they just want to kill him. Look what John says in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. It was not lost on them what Jesus was saying about himself. You see, Jesus is a totally different category. He's not just a moral example. What Jesus is profoundly, amazingly, is he is God come into our world. It's like Shakespeare enters the story of Hamlet. God enters the world that he created. He lives the life you and I were always supposed to have lived. He was righteous in the way that we always long we would be. And then he took the death our sin deserved. And then he came back to life. And he says, your wholeness, your healing, all the things that you want to be made right in your life, you cannot find it in what you're looking for. Uh, The pool will never heal you. Only I can actually heal you. You know, at the end of the movie, in Free Solo, uh, poor Alex Honnold, he does it. You know, spoiler alert, he he does it. He climbs El Capitan. It's terrifying. Your, Your palms are sweating the whole time. 
Even if you're not on an airplane and you watch the movie, your palms are sweating. He gets over the top and, uh, you know, he hugs his girlfriend and his buddy. And you know what he does? They say, what are you going to do now? He just did the greatest single athletic feat of all time. He comes down the mountain, goes back into the van he lives in, and starts doing pull-ups again. It was almost as if the thing he was always wanting to give him wholeness and perfection and healing never actually could. And if it did, it was fleeting at best. He was like a man looking at a pool for 38 years, thinking, if I could just get in there, then I'd be whole. Then I'd be healed. It's like the woman thinking, if I could just have that family, that house, then I'd be whole. Or the man thinking, if I could just finally make that career move, then I'd be whole. And all the while, Jesus is moving towards us saying, don't you get it? It's in me. It's in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you move towards us in grace. That our identity is shaped by grace and grace alone. That our identity is something that you give us as a father, not something that we have to earn. Holy Spirit, we pray, even now, would you be calling people into your family for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.